Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. The January 6th panel says former President Trump chose not to act as he watched the Capitol breach on TV while former First Lady Melania Trump breaks her silence. Former Trump advisor Steve Bannon is in court. His defense team rested its case without calling witnesses. In the charges against Bannon, his lawyer says he was caught in the middle. Using arrest warrants to board flights in the U.S. That's what some illegal immigrants are doing. A senator grilled the TSA chief on the issue. Life-threatening hacks could happen to some car GPS trackers. They're made by a company in China. A security firm says these vulnerabilities could pose a threat to national security. The January 6th committee yesterday argued that former President Trump deliberately ignored calls from staff to denounce violence. The panel attempted to lay out a minute-by-minute account of Trump's actions during the Capitol breach. And today's Jessica Beatty has more. The January 6th panel Thursday detailed what members said was Trump's failure to act between the end of his speech at a rally urging supporters to go to the Capitol and the release of a video telling people to go home. But you have to go home now. We have to have peace. President Trump did not fail to act during the 187 minutes between leaving the ellipse and telling the mob to go home. He chose not to act. Representative Elaine Luria said the hearing was principally about what happened inside the White House that afternoon. What you will learn is that President Trump sat in his dining room and watched the attack on television while his senior most staff, closest advisors and family members begged him to do what is expected of any American president. The panel's chairman, Representative Benny Thompson, said Trump's daughter Ivanka and son Don Jr. were among those who pleaded with him to act. Witnesses told the committee President Trump didn't call any law enforcement or national security officials as the events unfolded. The panel used the testimony to make the case that Trump's refusal to intervene amounted to a dereliction of duty. However, prior to the rally, Trump did offer 10,000 National Guard troops, which House Speaker Nancy Pelosi refused. The hearing featured footage of White House security staff worrying about then-Vice President Mike Pence's safety as protesters came within feet of his office. If we lose uh, any more time, we may may lose the ability to, to leave. They are on the second floor. The panel also showed previously unseen footage of Trump rehearsing a speech the day after January 6th, where he took out a part about the election being over. This election is now over. Congress has certified the results. I don't want to say the election's over. I just want to say Congress has certified the results without saying the election's over. The panel's vice chair, Liz Cheney, says the committee will return with hearings in September. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. To get another take on what happened, Epic TV is premiering a new documentary today called The Real Story of January 6th. It says it asks questions about who was really responsible for the chaos that day. Epic Time subscribers can watch it for free until midnight tonight. Former First Lady Melania Trump says she was not aware of the events taking place during the U.S. Capitol breach on January 6th. And she says the reason is that her chief of staff abandoned her post. She said that she was recording the contents of the White House's historic rooms, which includes taking archival photographs of the renovations. She told Fox News she organized a team to do it several months in advance, and January 6th was the deadline. 
Mrs. Trump said her chief of staff, Stephanie Grisham, was not in the White House on January 6th and that her behavior amounted to dereliction of duty. She said normally the First Lady's chief of staff provides detailed briefings surrounding the nation's important issues, but that Grisham abandoned her post. Grisham has often criticized former President Donald Trump and the former First Lady since they left office. Melania Trump said that if she was informed of all the details, she would have immediately denounced the violence that occurred at the Capitol building. Steve Bannon's defense team rested its case without calling any witnesses. The defense asked the judge to dismiss the contempt of Congress charges against Bannon for defying a subpoena by the January 6th committee. Here are the details. Lawyer David Schoen on Thursday said Bannon, a former top advisor to President Donald Trump, decided not to testify because he was barred by the judge from making two arguments. The first, that he believed his communications with Trump were protected by a legal doctrine called executive privilege. The second, that he relied on legal advice from an attorney in refusing to comply. Lawyer David Schoen spoke after the day's proceedings. He's not someone who thought he was above the law ever. Bannon respected executive privilege. He respects the Constitution, the separation of powers principle. His view was he's caught in the middle, his hands are tied, and that was the view of his lawyer. It's not his privilege to waive. If it were, he would have spoken. Bannon told reporters he's testified before Congress for some 50 hours in the past, but said he followed a pattern. Every time the exact same way. Executive privilege, a lawyer was engaged, they worked it out, and every time, every single time, more than anybody else in the Trump administration, and quite frankly, even McGahn and Ryan, some of those guys aggregate, Stephen K. Bannon testified. So you heard it laid out today. See you guys tomorrow. Thank you very much. By the way, 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 one last thing. I stand with Trump in the Constitution. Thank you very much. Closing arguments from both sides are expected on Friday, with the jury then due to begin deliberations. And next we get some analysis on the trial of former White House advisor Steve Bannon. An investigative journalist who has been following the Trump-Russia probe weighs in on why Bannon won't testify, what the January 6th panel is seeking, and the likelihood of a fair trial. Please welcome Lee Smith, who is the author of The Plot Against the President. Thanks for making the time today, Lee. Ah, thank you for inviting me on. I really appreciate it. Now, can you explain why Steve Bannon's lawyer said Bannon wanted to testify, but he didn't because he wouldn't be able to tell the true facts? Uh, I, I mean, I, th I, th I think a lot of that has to do with two things. First of all, the president extends executive... The communications between the president and his aides are uh, afforded executive privilege, which means that they don't have to testify just when someone demands that they testify. Um, I, I, the communications from the President of the United States are among our most classified, are, are among our most sensitive communications. So the idea that people can just demand, uh, political opponents can demand that the President's, the former President's aides testify is outrageous. I think what the lawyer also may have been referring to, the true facts, I think what he means is, is that the January 6th committee is not, um, has not been appointed to deal with the true facts of January 6th. It's a political prosecution of Trump supporters, Trump aides, and, uh, of course, the president himself. So, Lee, give us a little background on this. What exactly is the J6 panel seeking from Bannon in terms of their investigation? Uh, what the J6 panel wants from everyone is they want enough information to put together to use against Donald Trump to charge Donald Trump. 
uh, for the uh, Department of Justice to charge Donald Trump. Now, you see that they've been charging Trump supporters. A lot of them have been charged with obstruction of justice, uh, obstruction charges, right? It's the same charge that Robert Mueller uh, ideally wanted to bring against Donald Trump for the, um, you know, for, 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 with the Russiagate investigation. So what we've seen here is we've seen an out-of-control Justice Department, uh, and we've seen Democratic Party operatives and the um, left base. They've been fanatical about trying to put Donald Trump in handcuffs since, certainly since November 2020, uh, November 2016, rather, if not before. And so this is just a, a, a continued effort of that. This, I suspect, they believe may be one of their last chances to go after Donald Trump. So that's why they want to ban. Look, remember what happened during Russiagate, how they went after all the different Trump aides, like Michael Flynn. What they wanted from Michael Flynn was for Michael Flynn to give up some sort of evidence to make up a story about Donald Trump so they could remove Donald Trump from office. And because Flynn didn't do that, that's why they start, started threatening Flynn's son, right, his family members. It's the same thing that's going on here. They want Bannon to talk. They want Bannon to say something bad about Trump. They want Bannon to give up something about Trump so the Justice Department can go and use that and put Trump in handcuffs. And Lee, given the results of the Sussman trial, are you confident that a jury in D.C. will rule failure on this case? That's a very good question. No, I'm not. Uh, you know, we saw what happened during some of the January 6th testimony when Cassidy Hutchinson, uh, a former uh, aide of Trump chief of staff, uh, Mark Meadows, when she openly lied, she told, told a preposterous story about Trump leaning forward into the car to try to grab the steering wheel away from one of the drivers, which is just preposterous, as many people have explained, have explained it physically cannot happen. However, though, Ms. Hutchinson is, is safe, presumably, from perjury charges, um, perjuring herself before Congress, which is a crime, but she's safe because she's fighting for the right side in Washington, D.C. Had it been someone else, she might be in trouble. But that's a very good question about the Sussman case. Washington, tragically, our capital city, the capital of the greatest country in the history of Earth has become a politicized cesspool. So the idea that people who are not in lockstep with, uh, with the progressive movement might not get a fair trial, I, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to say yes. I think that's, that's quite likely. Author Lee Smith, thank you so much for your analysis on this. Thank you. A scary incident during a campaign event for Congressman Lee Zeldin on Thursday. While making a speech in Fairport, New York, the New York Republican was attacked on stage by a man wielding a weapon who attempted to stab him. Zeldin grabbed the attacker's wrist to stop him until others assisted in taking the attacker to the ground. The lawmaker, who was also the Republican nominee for New York governor, then returned to the stage to finish his remarks. Former NYPD Deputy Inspector Allison Esposito, Zeldin's running mate, was among those who helped stop the attacker. That's what the state GOP chair Nick Langworthy told the Associated Press. Officials said the accused attacker, 43-year-old David Jacobonis, was taken into custody. He was released from jail hours after he was arrested on Thursday evening. In a late-night Twitter post, Zeldin predicted that Jacobonis would be released due to New York's controversial bail reform laws that Republicans and some law enforcement groups say have driven up crime. And that's exactly what happened. The Republican Party of Arizona has a plan to prevent vote buying in the upcoming statewide primary. It's offering two $50,000 rewards for information leading to the conviction of anyone suspected of the crime. The Republican Party says vote buying happens when someone completes a mail-in ballot in front of a vote buyer. 
If the voter then gives the buyer the completed ballot and the signed ballot return envelope, the party considers that vote buying. It can include an offer of money, goods, or services in exchange for votes. Transparency International says vote buying weakens the trust citizens have in their elected officials and limits their ability to speak up against corruption. Arizona has prosecuted at least nine cases of voter fraud following the 2020 election, including one case involving a former Arizona mayor. Illegal immigrants are using arrest warrants to board flights in the U.S. The TSA chief confirmed that it is happening and that it's been going on for quite some time. Here are the details. The head of the Transportation Security Administration, or TSA, says that under 1,000 illegal immigrants were allowed to present civil immigration enforcement documents, like arrest warrants, to board commercial U.S. flights this calendar year. TSA Administrator David Pekuski was re-nominated by President Joe Biden for a second five-year term. At his confirmation hearing on Thursday, Republican Senator Josh Hawley asked how the TSA policy complies with U.S. laws that criminalize improper entry into the country. The senator also wanted to know why federal security directors aren't called in such a case. They, they will bring in the federal security director if needed. Well, why would that person not be needed if, if you have someone who's an illegal immigrant? Right. So, so we aren't looking at whether a person is legal or illegal in the country. Our, our function is to make sure that... Why not? Because our role is to make sure that uh, people that might pose a risk to transportation um, that's significant enough to either require enhanced screening or to not allow them to fly, um, that the proper... So your position is someone who is known to have violated the laws of the United States does, does not thereby need enhanced screening? You're not concerned about this person as a security threat? Uh, sir, there are people every day that violate the laws of the United States that fly. Uh, we look for things that are related to transportation security. Senator Hawley also said he had not received the response from Pekuski to a letter he sent the TSA chief in January. In the letter, Hawley said that the TSA policy subverts the rule of law and should be rescinded immediately. In his words, the point of an arrest warrant is for the police to actively seek out and apprehend criminals. This dystopian inversion exceeds the point of absurdity, where radical open border policies attempt to accomplish the very opposite of DHS's core mission apprehending those who cross our borders illegally. Pekuski said he would respond to the letter by July 22nd. A TSA official told the Epic Times back in January that the TSA had that policy since its creation after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. The official said he believed TSA agents didn't have the authority to arrest illegal aliens. Meanwhile, ICE, when asked whether non-ICE law enforcement agents could enforce the arrest warrants, refused to answer the question. The Supreme Court voted Thursday not to override current immigration policies. A lower court previously blocked the Department of Homeland Security from changing immigration enforcement priorities. DHS wants to prioritize deportation for immigrants it believes pose a threat to public safety. But Texas and Louisiana sued to stop the change. The current law calls for deporting immigrants in the country illegally, regardless of if they are deemed a safety concern. DHS officials say that policy doesn't allow the department to best use its limited resources. By deciding not to hear the case, the Supreme Court has left the lower court's ruling in place for now. But the court will hear arguments on the case's merits during the December term. A boat carrying more than 150 migrants had to be rescued by Florida officials. This is a look from above, near the island of Boca Chita. The Coast Guard says the boat got stuck in the sand and it's still stuck at sea. One person had to be taken to the hospital for some reason, but there's no information on how that person is doing. Customs and Border Patrol are investigating and they say everyone on the boat will be sent back home. 
Empowering children to receive transgender treatment? That's what one U.S. official wants to do. But what are the consequences of those procedures? Our reporter spoke with a California man who went through gender transitioning, and he told us what he experienced and how it continues to impact his life. On a Monday appearance on MSNBC, Assistant Secretary of Health Rachel Levine said we should empower kids to get gender-affirming care, which can include hormone therapy and surgical procedures, such as the removal of breasts or genitals. But what happens when someone regrets undergoing such a life-changing procedure? What are the effects on the body and how easy is it to walk back the decision? NTD spoke with Abel Garcia, a California man who underwent surgery to get a female body but later realized it wasn't the right thing to do. He says the path of changing one's sex is a dark one. It leads to a life of pain through chemical and surgical castration. One thing I am able to confirm that I didn't have before I started my transition, but I don't know what it is, is I don't know whether it's nerve damage or if it's a seizure, but the left half of my body shakes on its own. Um, I don't know when it happens, but usually I can, I can tell when it's about to happen. Why did Abel want to become a woman? He says it's because of his circumstances and the trauma he experienced early in his life, not the way he was born. Growing up, I actually didn't really have my father in my life because um, he came here to the U.S. illegally, so he was always working nonstop. Um, I didn't really have a father figure growing up. Um, eventually, he did get a better job that caused him to be gone five, six days a week, so again, still didn't have him in my life. Um, Growing up, I didn't feel adequate as a young boy. I was very shy, quiet, timid, not like your stereotypical boy. Um, I'm also an overthinker, so I think that also might have been a cost to it. I know the point that I realized I needed to transition was when my father took me to a prostitute in Mexico and traumatized me. When Abel went to a psychiatrist to find out whether he was transgender, he was told that he was. He says the psychiatrist prescribed sex-changing medication right away at the first meeting. Two years later, he realized that he made a huge mistake and wanted to detransition, but he couldn't get psychiatrists to sign off on having his breast implants removed, which he says his insurance company requested. He says psychiatrists are afraid the state might accuse them of conversion therapy. Yes, it's very hard to uh, detransition in California. But it's very easy to transition California, I would assume, because the therapist that I was having, um, he helped me realize that I'm not a woman, I'm just a man. I've always been a man, and I would assume because California is more liberal in their politics that they don't want people to reverse these surgeries. Abel says he still doesn't know all of the impacts these procedures had on his body. He doesn't know how his fertility was affected, and he says he suffered damage to his genitals because of the medication. Nowadays, there's a big push to support children who think they're transgender. Proponents argue it's empathetic and caring to let them change their sex, but Abel disagrees. These people will tell you it's very compassionate to let these kids start on hormones. It's not. I would just tell these kids that you're you're good as you are. You are you are not transgender. These surgeries will not help you. These hormones will not help you. It will actually cause more damage to your body in the long run. Abel is now actively raising awareness about the dangers of cross-sex procedures to kids. He has a YouTube channel and speaks at events in person. Reporting by Arian Pastar, NTD News. 
Coming up, a rare case of polio is found in New York. Health officials say the infection stems from polio vaccination overseas. And parents are preparing to spend big on back-to-school shopping. This year, they face inflation that could take a huge bite out of the family budget. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. The New York State Health Department says a case of polio has been identified outside New York City. It's the nation's first known case of the disease in nearly 10 years. Here's more. U.S. health officials have confirmed the nation's first case of polio in nearly a decade in a suburb outside New York City. The New York State Health Department said Thursday a Rockland County resident was diagnosed with the disease after experiencing paralysis a month ago, but is no longer contagious. Testing by state health experts suggested the case stemmed from a strain of weakened virus used in oral polio vaccines overseas. The vaccines can sometimes cause a polio infection and have since been discontinued and replaced in the U.S. by inactivated vaccines, which only use dead germs from the disease. But local health officials say the infected resident wasn't vaccinated and exactly where or how he was exposed to the disease remains under investigation. While polio has no cure, infection rates have been reduced dramatically worldwide thanks to vaccination. At its peak, it was once one of the most feared diseases in the United States, with waves of infections disabling about 35,000 Americans every year in the late 1940s. The U.S. CDC says the last known U.S. polio infection of any kind was traced to an oral vaccine in 2013, while no cases have originated inside the U.S. since 1979. The CDC warns that the latest salmonella outbreak across the United States is linked to tiny pet turtles. The agency says many people in the outbreak purchased small turtles online before getting sick. It recommends that people do not buy turtles with shells less than four inches long and that a federal law bans the sale of these turtles as pets. That's because they do cause salmonella outbreaks. The CDC says the small turtles are often available for sale online and at stores, flea markets, and roadside stands. At least 15 people from 11 states fell ill, and five of them were hospitalized after they bought small turtles online. The agency says three people in the outbreak purchased their turtles from MyTurtleStore.com. The same strain of salmonella making people sick was found on turtles purchased from that website. School districts in some parts of the country are getting ready to welcome back students in just a few weeks. And for parents, that means back-to-school shopping amid historic inflation and recession fears. According to the National Retail Federation, spending is expected to match last year's record high of $37 billion. Here are some tips to save parents from breaking the bank to get kids ready for back-to-school. Scissors you have and glue. Have the back-to-school shopping season is underway and parents are facing higher prices for just about everything on their list amid looming recession fears and inflation reaching a 41-year high. That's food prices, that's rent, and that's back-to-school uh, supplies. So everything's up a lot, and it's really biting into the purchasing power of uh, the typical family. Meanwhile, a new National Retail Federation survey found one-third of consumers say they're spending less in other areas so they can pay for items their children need for school. Financial expert Julie Almataveras says it's good that parents are prioritizing items for school and has these three tips to save money. The first step is to make a budget and stick with it. Next, take it slow. 
Some parents make the mistake of buying too much before school starts, only to find out that their children don't actually need it. Don't worry about having a back to school haul. Don't worry about spending hundreds of dollars on clothes and hundreds of dollars of school supplies. Have a good understanding of what the needs are going to be for that semester or for that year and take it slowly. Also involve the kids. Taveras recommends giving them a set amount and letting them shop with you. That way it's a money lesson for them too, forcing them to prioritize what they really need. Don't go too crazy with the stickers and the binders and all of those extra things because a really important part of financial power and also teaching generational wealth is having these conversations. The United States of America is the most powerful nation in the world, economically and militarily. It's also the most popular destination for the world's immigrants, by far. And yet a growing number of young Americans are dissatisfied with their country. Why is that? And is there a solution? They educate young Americans who are ignorant of America's history, indifferent to liberty, and estranged from their country. According to a 2021 survey by the Pew Research Center, 42% of Americans between the ages of 18 and 29 say other countries are better than the U.S. In contrast, at least 70% of Americans at ages 30 and up view the U.S. as either the greatest country or one of the greatest countries in the world. David Randall is the executive director of Civics Alliance, a coalition of organizations and citizens dedicated to preserving and improving civics education in the U.S., He says almost all of America's K-12 schools have stopped teaching about Western civilization and the ideals of liberty, and he believes this is the root cause of anti-American sentiment among youth. We need restored social studies instruction centered on freedom to educate a new generation of Americans to secure the blessings of liberty. In June, Civics Alliance launched American Birthright, a model for K-12 social studies standards. Its goal is to teach students to become effective citizens and combat social studies standards that focus on identity politics. American Birthright teaches students to identify the ideals, institutions, and individual examples of human liberty. Individualism, Republican self-government, religious freedom, and then once identified, to assess to the extent to which civilizations have fulfilled these ideals and describe how the evolution of these ideals in different times and places has contributed to the formation of modern American ideals. Douglas Norlander, a veteran social studies teacher at Tartan High School in Minnesota, is a supporter of American Birthright Initiative. He said many social studies and history classes are not giving students the full picture. I always ask the question, U.S. history compared to what? Like what was happening in China? What was happening in the Arab world or in India? Um, A lot of kids when they leave high school have a very negative view of American history. The kids almost think, well, America was the only country that had slavery or the only country that had segregation. And there's this lack of a global perspective, I think, that we need to bring back into the um, curriculum where the kids have this nuanced and broad perspective. 
Nicole Neely, founder of Parents Defending Education, a nonprofit that's part of Civics Alliance, said that parents across the country have become upset with politicized teachings in schools in recent years. We have seen over the past year, two years, parents rising up, parents becoming deeply, deeply unhappy about what has been taking place in American schools. Um, people are mad about the race and gender theory lessons that are being taught in school um, that teach children to view each other through the lens of identity politics and pitting each other against, uh, against their peers. And why I'm so grateful for the, the launch of the American Birthright Project, because it is a concrete and positive thing that parents can bring to the table. Jenna Robinson is head of the public policy organization that promotes excellence in higher education. She's part of the steering committee of the American Birthright Project. As we all know, the current standards are failing to create effective citizens. And right now we are fighting against various balderized versions of history, civics and geography in our schools. It's important for all students to get a sound footing in history and civics, regardless of whether they go to college. This is our American heritage. It's all of our birthright, not just students uh, who go on to post-secondary education, and it should be taught to everyone. The creation of the American birthright model seems to be part of a larger trend. As of right now, seven states have banned the teachings of critical race theory. They include Arkansas, Florida, Idaho, Iowa, New Hampshire, Oklahoma, and Tennessee. Florida has also passed the Stop Woke Act to regulate how schools and businesses address race and gender. Reporting by Angela Lemoyne, NTD News. Many arrests and the recovery of several missing children. That's the result of an operation into human trafficking during the World Games 2022 in Birmingham, Alabama. The Department of Homeland Security's investigative arm ran the operation. The resident agent in charge said that human traffickers take advantage of large sporting events like the Super Bowl and the World Games. The events bring in a lot of people and a huge amount of cash that creates a potential for commercial sex. The World Games Human Exploitation Task Force launched an operation two weeks before the start of the Games, but planning for the event began three years prior. Federal agents identified seven minors who had been reported to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. The underage victims were recovered and provided services. The World Games is a multi-sport competition for sports not included in the Olympic Games. Commuters evacuated a Massachusetts train on Thursday. It caught fire as it crossed the Mystic River crossing at Somerville. One passenger jumped off the bridge into the river below. Some passengers climbed out through a window to evacuate. Most use emergency exits and carriages. About 200 passengers evacuated the train. No injuries were reported. The Orange Line train is operated by the Massachusetts Bay Transit Authority. It was traveling south on the rail bridge when the fire broke out, forcing it to a stop. According to MBTA reports, the fire started when a metal seal under one of the train cars came loose and made contact with the third rail, and that rail provides electric power to the cars. It is unclear how the seal came loose. After the power was turned off, the train was brought to a rail yard for an investigation. The infrastructure is also being inspected. The MBTA has notified the Federal Transit Administration and the National Transportation Safety Board. The fire is the latest in a string of dangerous problems with the troubled system. A landmark restaurant in New York is closing its doors permanently. The New York Department of Labor's office says Central Park's Low Boathouse will shut down this fall. The Low Boathouse touts on its website that it's the only Manhattan eatery and venue on a lake. It's been in the middle of Central Park for over 150 years. The notice states it's closing due to a rising labor and cost of goods. 
The restaurant employs 163 workers. They will be out of a job come October 16th. No word on what will become of that space. The boathouse itself, however, will not close. The current building, which was built in 1954, belongs to the city, though the city's Department of Parks and Recreations says they plan to work in good faith with the current operator and future operator. Is fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction? Florida Attorney General Ashley Moody sent a letter urging President Biden to declare it so. And if the president acts on Moody's letter, three key government agencies would have to wage a war against the deadly drug, the Department of Homeland Security, the Justice Department, and the Pentagon. Moody urged the president to invoke this designation under the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, or she suggested the president could urge Congress to pass the Fentanyl is a WMD Act. Moody said in the letter that the whole federal government and every tactic and capability that we have should be utilized to stop the death and destruction that fentanyl is causing. She cited several incidents in Florida where people have recently died from fentanyl use. That includes, sadly, nine people over the July 4th weekend. In the letter, Moody told the president that his administration has done little to abate the fentanyl crisis. She blamed the influx of drugs coming from the southern border as the number one cause of fentanyl poisoning Americans at record rates. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland spoke with Mexico's Attorney General about extraditing drug lord Rafael Carl Quintero to the United States, according to the Justice Department. Garland also offered his condolences for the dozen-plus Mexican service members who died during the operation to capture Caro Quintero. Quintero was an FBI most wanted fugitive. He allegedly kidnapped and considered a murder DEA special agent Enrique Carmenera in 1985. Garland previously said that the United States will seek immediate extradition of Caro Quintero so he can be tried in the very justice system special agent Carmenera died defending. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And just ahead, House Republicans lay out steps to deter the Chinese Communist Party. This as Biden reveals his timeline for talks with China's Xi Jinping. We fill you in on what lawmakers are telling us right after the break. House Republicans are stepping up calls to deter the Chinese Communist Party. This as they cite increasing threats that Beijing poses to the democratically ruled island of Taiwan and also to the United States. Entity's Iris Tao has more. As we have learned in Ukraine, deterrence comes before conflict, not after it. House GOP leader and members of the Congressional China Task Force are calling to boost arms sales to Taiwan and that they say it's for the good of the United States. We need to arm Taiwan right now. General MacArthur said Taiwan in the hands of the communists would be an unsinkable aircraft carrier and submarine base ideally located to accomplish offensive strategy. Thank you, Leader McCarthy. The Wednesday roundtable comes amid Beijing's warnings that it will take forceful actions if Nancy Pelosi indeed visits Taiwan to show support, a trip that Biden says the military thinks is not a good idea right now. But lawmakers say the U.S. has to deter mounting aggression from the communist regime. Hong Kongers being beaten by police, Uyghurs men, women and children forced into concentration camps, um, and Taiwanese citizens being threatened with military incursion. The CCP has shown itself to be ruthless, aggressive 
and evil dictatorship. They're also backing legislation to avoid delays in delivering U.S. arms already sold to Taiwan. Before the bullets start flying and people start dying, uh, we will avert a war, but uh, we've got to move quickly. His speed is life in that regard. Meanwhile, President Biden said Wednesday, I think I'll be talking to President Xi within the next 10 days. And I asked Congressman Guy Reschenthaler, How do you think the issue of Taiwan could be brought up? Well, the issue should be brought up, and there should be no doubt uh, with the PLA and with the Chinese Communist Party that the United States will act to defend Taiwan. And the message to the dictator Xi should be clear that we will support a sister democracy. Biden has on several occasions said the U.S. would defend Taiwan in an attack from China. But White House officials have walked back such remarks. And now it's unclear whether Biden's plans to talk to Xi will be affected by the president testing positive for COVID. Reporting Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. Some GPS trackers in cars can be hacked, leading to potentially life-threatening situations. Flaws have been found in a device made by Mikatis, a company based in the city of Shenzhen, China. According to ARS Technica, the MV720 GPS tracker made by Mikatis has not been patched to prevent critical vulnerabilities. Security firm BitSight found six vulnerabilities in the tracker. Those include tracking cars without people knowing, disabling whole fleets of corporate or emergency vehicles, and even forcing personal cars to stop abruptly, causing dangerous situations like when driving on the highway. The security firm and the U.S. government are urging the public to stop using these popular trackers immediately. Additionally, researchers say these hacks can occur in other Mikatis models, too. The warning is serious. BitSight says the exploitation of these vulnerabilities could have disastrous and even life-threatening implications, and attackers could choose to surreptitiously track individuals or demand ransom payments to return disabled vehicles to working condition. There are many possible scenarios which could result in loss of life, property damage, privacy intrusions, and threatened national security. BitSight also revealed it's been trying to contact Mikatis since September to notify the company of the vulnerabilities. They got no response, so the security firm and the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency brought their findings to the public on Tuesday. The tracker has a broad user base. The Chinese company says one and a half million devices are being used by over 400,000 customers. The security firm says it's in use in about 170 countries. The device costs about $20 on Amazon. BitSight says customers that use the tracker include police, governments, and militaries, plus logistics and manufacturing companies. More specifically, BitSight found that the trackers are used by a Fortune 50 energy company, one country's military in South America, a nuclear power plant operator, and a state in the eastern U.S. The hacked devices can reportedly cause other harm, too, like impersonating the user by sending text to the tracker from their mobile number, cutting off the vehicle's fuel supply, and disarming alarms or other features. The security firm raised national security concerns, including how an adversary could gather intel on military movements, including supply routes, troop locations, and routine patrols. The company says unlawful tracking is a growing concern, and it says these hacks can be used to learn travel patterns of home or business owners to facilitate planned burglaries. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And still to come, wasted water in Italy is making the nation's drought worse. The country is looking to improve water management so leaky pipes and ancient infrastructure don't add to a bad situation. Find out more right here on NTD News.
Croatian authorities have arrested a former Mexican beauty queen and her Romanian-Dutch accomplice after a nine-month chase across Europe. Their crime? Theft over a $1.4 million worth of wine from a Spanish restaurant. Spanish police said in October 2021, 45 wine bottles were spirited away from the cellars of the famous hotel restaurant El Atrio in the western city of Caceres. Police investigators believe the woman distracted El Atrio waiters by ordering room service from the Michelin-starred restaurant after its kitchen had closed. Meanwhile, her accomplice slipped down to the wine cellar, opened it with a master key he had stolen during a prior visit, and filled three backpacks with the astronomically expensive bottles. The next day, the pair left on foot with no forensic trace of their presence left at the hotel. The stolen wine has not been recovered, and the investigation is continuing. Aging infrastructure and leaky pipes are adding to Italy's already disastrous drought situation. A lot of precious water vanishes down the drain before it even reaches the taps. For thousands of years, this vast swath of land south of Italy's Rome was a boggy swamp. A drainage program in the 1930s transformed it from malaria-infested marshes into prime agricultural fields. Now, water here is actually growing scarce as the country is gripped by one of the worst droughts in living memory. Stefano Boschetto runs a family farm on the fertile Latina Plains. His crops of kiwi fruit, cucumbers and melons are suffering from water rationing, which halts irrigation for two days a week. It seems strange that we are talking about a lack of water in an area like this, where not a thousand years ago, but 80 to 90 years ago, excess water was being pumped out. But in reality, things change, and they change quickly. So we have to understand just as quickly what the problems are and figure out how to solve them, and find solutions to solve the problems and to have quality agriculture. It's not just the weather that's causing Boschetto a headache. Aging infrastructure and leaky pipes are making the situation worse. Much precious water is vanishing down the drain before it even reaches the taps. In fact, about 70% of water gets lost in transit in Latina. Marco Lombardi is CEO of the local water company, Aqua Latina. He says the blame cannot just be laid on the poor infrastructure. The figure of 70% of water lost should actually be reduced to about 10 to 20% lost, as that is how much is lost because of administrative reasons. So the real physical water leakage figure is between 50 and 60%. I have to say that when someone sees this number, they must think that the company managing the water system is not doing anything about it. However, the truth is the opposite, in the sense that Aqua Latina does more than 10,000 repair interventions a year on a network of pipes that is 3,500 kilometers long. In an effort to counter the crisis, Italy's government has earmarked $4.5 billion from a European Union pandemic recovery fund. It will use the money over the next four years to improve water management. It estimates that capturing a quarter of the country's annual rainfall would cover the needs of the nation's farmers. It is planning to use some of the EU cash to create dozens of reservoirs to store rainwater runoff. For farmers like Boschetto, the funds cannot start flowing soon enough. 
An outbreak of foot and mouth disease in cattle is raising alarm in Indonesia and its neighboring countries. Indonesia is using vaccination, culling, and animal monitoring to try and curb the spread, but it's already sickened hundreds of thousands of cattle. The virus easily spreads through contact and airborne transmission. It can quickly infect entire herds. People spread, can spread the disease through things like farming equipment, shoes, clothing, vehicle tires, and more. Though it's considered rare, humans can also carry the virus in their nose for short periods of time, infecting animals. Australia is free of the disease, but is worried because Indonesia's outbreak has spread to Bali, and that's a popular destination for Australian tourists. Australia is offering assistance and stepping up detection and prevention steps at its airports to keep the virus out. And coming up, switching from airplanes back to the Zeppelin, a European airline is giving it a shot, planning to have commercial flights with a modern era airship. And if you're looking for an out of this world fashion statement, Sotheby's Auction House in New York might have the item for you. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. Back to the age of the Zeppelin, a Spanish airline is trying it out. The regional airline Air Nostrum is planning to use the hybrid airship soon. The airline has reserved a fleet of 10 hybrid airships from the UK-based company Hybrid Air Vehicles. The airship is called Airlander, and it's said to be more sustainable. Hybrid Air Vehicles says the airship only uses 10% of the emissions of other aircrafts. That's because it's helium-filled, so it only needs fuel to move forward, not to stay in the air. However, it does move about six times slower than a commercial airliner and can only transport around 100 people. The first models will be hybrids. The company is planning to go all-electric by 2030. Production of the aircraft is set to launch in the UK this year. The first commercial flights are planned for 2026. An Italian astronaut teams up with a Russian cosmonaut for a spacewalk. It's a show of unity as tensions over Ukraine continue 260 miles below. The pair worked at the International Space Station's laboratory on Thursday. They outfitted the European robotic arm with hardware. The spacewalkers also relocated the arm's external control panel. They replaced a protective window on the arm's camera unit and extended a telescoping boom to help future spacewalks. The European robotic arm will be used to move payloads and equipment outside the Russian segment of the station. In that way, it will be like the Canadian and Japanese-built arms. They already support station maintenance, operations, and research. Wednesday, July 20th, was the 53rd anniversary of the first time humans landed on the moon. Now a piece of that journey to space could be yours for a few million dollars. Sotheby's is auctioning off Buzz Aldrin's in-flight coverall jacket worn during the Apollo 11 mission to the moon. Neil Armstrong's complete in-flight coverall garment, jacket, trousers, and boots are at the Smithsonian. Mike Collins' jacket, trousers, and boots are at the Smithsonian. Buzz's trousers and boots are at the Smithsonian. That means that this jacket is the only garment worn on the Apollo 11 mission that can be owned privately. The jacket is part of a larger auction of Aldrin's personal possessions, including his Medal of Honor and a Go Army Beat Navy flag he brought on a moonwalk. The price estimate is between $1 and $2 million. There's also a famous pen that may have saved Aldrin's and Armstrong's lives while in the lunar module. The story goes that there was a problem with a circuit breaker, and Aldrin's quick thinking with a pen may have saved everyone's lives. He realizes he's got this pen in his pocket, 
that has a plastic tip at the end. And by some kind of miracle, the diameter of that plastic tip was the same as the diameter of the switch, and it fit perfectly in that hole and pff, armed the engine and saved their lives. Its estimate stands at $1 to $2 million as well. The collection also includes awards, medals, and letters from the astronaut's life. The Buzz Aldrin American Icon sale will take place Tuesday, July 26th. A separate sale will follow on Wednesday, July 27th, titled Meteorites, Select Specimens from the Moon, Mars, Vesta, and more. That sale will feature the end piece of a lunar meteorite, a rock ejected off the lunar surface following an asteroid impact. Sotheby's says it is the second most massive piece of the moon on Earth. A golden tabby tigress has given birth to cubs in Karachi, Pakistan. The breed is very rare with only 30 left in the world today. Lara, a golden tabby tigress, was two months old when she was brought to Karachi. Golden tabby tigers are very rare. The owner of the tiger sanctuary said this is the first time that a golden tiger has been bred in Pakistan. It is also a very rare breed throughout the world. Now, at six and a half years old, Lara is the mother of two female cubs. Lara was bred with a male tiger who is also six years old. The adult tigers typically eat up to 15 pounds of meat a day. The cubs, while still suckling, have started to expand their diet. The sanctuary employs a team of vets to take care of the animals. The Brookfield Zoo near Chicago has announced the birth of a male addicts. The zoo says the birth of this African antelope is significant because the species is critically endangered. It's on the brink of extinction in the wild. The male calf was born on July 2nd and spends most of its time in a nesting area, but has begun to venture outdoors with its mother. According to the zoo, the addicts was once found in large numbers across vast areas of the Sahara Desert. However, its numbers have dwindled, mainly due to illegal hunting for its meat, horns, and hide. There are fewer than 200 in zoos in North America. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email address on screen. We'd love to hear from you. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.